welcome, welcome, welcome to The Working That Is Chrononaut Chronicles. My name is Bill, and I will be your guide on this particular Sonic Adventure. Uh, the show is, of course, sponsored by mysticalwares.com. That is Derek Condit's metaphysical supply shop in Mount Vernon, Washington. So if you're in the area, definitely go and check it out. And uh, if you're not, or even if you are, you can still go to mysticalwares.com and uh, see what uh, see what Derek's got going on at the metaphysical supply shop there. And what is it uh, that we exactly do here on Chrononaut Chronicles? Uh, we admit uh, Bootsy Greenwood into the room. That's what we're doing. Uh, I am uh, joined by just two other Chrononauts tonight. Uh, Derek will not be with us uh, because he's busy with... Uh, a uh, a building so maybe more on that later from him i'm not too sure exactly how much i'm supposed to say or not but uh anyway uh yes what is the point behind chrononaut chronicles we have four segments uh, the almanac gratitude silver and sword segment and uh for for this week's sword segment i thought that I, we would look at a uh, chapter from a book entitled The Twelve Divine Virtues by Fortune de Saint-Germain, and uh, that the wisdom chapter particularly, so uh, wisdom being one of the Twelve Divine Virtues. And it's just a more or less a collection of like one, like one-liners, right? So it's relatively short, it won't take very long, and uh, which is nice because for the silver segment, I thought that we would just kind of talk about my recent trip up to the Upper Peninsula in Michigan. Uh, but the point behind the silver segment is, is to learn something new. So uh, we often cover uh, current events in this segment as well. And we try to look for the silver lining, which may ultimately be that this too may pass or uh, or memento mori. Right. Um, and before we get to that, though, we have the gratitude segment because gratitude is a key ingredient in this working in particular. And to kick the start uh, to kick uh, to kick the show off actually we look at the old farmer's almanac for upcoming celestial events and any energies that we want to work with and capitalize on uh, so speaking of that not a whole lot happening this week according to the uh, almanac anyway but the the equinox is actually on saturday so that's kind of a big a big event saturday uh the 23rd uh, I was just looking at the almanac, obviously, to uh, to figure out what exactly was going on. And if you if you look at the chart for the length of day and and sunset and sunrise, the twenty sixth of September is actually when there is more or less. Uh, 12 hours of lightness and 12 hours of darkness the day is 11 hours and 59 minutes long on the 26th uh, but the uh, the sun the declination is at its lowest point on the 23rd which is apparently where where we get the equinox from not not the equal night equal day even though it is interesting that's what the word itself means but uh, I, I digress i don't know it's just been something that I like to keep up on, or I've been debating, noticing, observing for a while. Anyway, 
Uh, but other than that, on uh, other than the equinox on Saturday, uh, Sunday we have Moon and Pluto conjunct. So that's that's about it for the almanac. And for gratitudes, let's uh, Ben. Let's uh, let's start off with Ben because he is with us at the moment, but he might be gone, swept up by a thunderstorm rolling in in a few minutes. So Ben, what? Uh, Thanks for being here, first of all. And uh, what's been going on? What are you grateful for? Yeah, man. Um, well, just kind of like you were talking about the equinox. Um, definitely fall coming in. And uh, things are getting cooler in camp. So it's always a fun time to uh, kind of reflect back on the summer, too. Oh yeah, coming into the harvest season, uh, definitely the season of Thanksgiving, right? That's just around the corner, so lots of uh, introspection and uh, respection, kind of like uh, how the most of the planets right now are are still in retrograde, I believe. So lots of uh, looking backwards, indeed. Uh, Owen, Owen, Owen Hunt is here with us. Owen is in the room, correct? I think he's here. Yes. Hi. Hey, buddy, you've never, I, good to see you, man. What's been going on? It's good to be here. Yeah, I've, uh, I was able to hop on. I know I have been a little bit more of an infrequent chrononaut as of late. I've just been uh, doing a lot of stand-up and stuff. Happy to be here, though. Super grateful to be here and to be able to connect with you guys. And glad to hear big things are in the works. Um, yeah, I, I echo Ben's sentiment for sure. And I, yeah, I'm. I'm grateful for a lot of things. I try to remember that every day. Um, and this show is a huge help for that because it's the big absolute cornerstone of it all. But yeah, I'm I'm just grateful to be able to, to yeah, like to be able to uh, do the things that I'm trying to do and learn. I'm, uh, I've, I've learned a lot and um, I've been working really hard and I'm happy happy for the fall it's my favorite season I, I don't know when the air gets a little bit cooler and crisper it's like I don't know it just feels so rewarding I know they call it harvest season uh, and I think that there's a lot of things that are on the horizon that are kind of starting to come in as well metaphysically not just physically in the harvest sector but that's yeah that's what i got man i'm happy to be here awesome awesome yeah it sounds like you've been a very uh productive industrious individual which is you know great and uh don't don't feel bad for not being on the show or whatever it's uh it's wonderful to uh to get to catch up with you so yeah thanks for being here and uh yeah my gratitude is is i don't think i used this one yet and if i have then oh well but i used a, a new tent in our uh, my recent expedition up into the upper peninsula of michigan and so big shout out to kodiak canvas not a sponsor i purchased their uh eight by nine canvas tent it's a oh, what do you call it suspension rod I guess a uh, stainless steel suspension rod tent. So you have to stake it down 
two to put it up. I had to get it to stay upright. And uh, it worked out pretty well. Got rained on twice, but we'll get into that later. But yeah, the gratitude is definitely, definitely the tense because it, it worked. Uh, it worked really well. So nice to be able to go camping and stay dry, right? That didn't, uh, we got, there's been times where it hasn't been the case and it's just uh yeah when everything's wet it, it's just gross and dirty there's really nothing you can do about it because you're outside but without further ado uh the silver segment i thought before i went into my spiel uh, i actually have a, a slideshow type thing prepared it's actually just a bunch of pictures from my cell phone during the trip i thought we would kind of look at them together and I could point out some of the things that we did and where we were and what we found. But uh, before, like I said before that, is there anything that uh, you two wanted to uh, talk about there for, for this the silver segment, you know, current events or, you know, anything you want to plug or, or whatever, right? Uh, new business is what this segment evolved from. So uh, feel free to, to uh, jump in. If not, I'm going to attempt to share my screen and we can try and look at some pictures together. So for any of you uh, audio listeners and subscribers, I do apologize. <laughs> this isn't a very audio friendly uh, episode, but I have been posting these on uh, our YouTube page. so. Definitely go and give that a follow if you haven't already. And you'll be able to see some of these awesome pictures I was able to take on my excursion. So, can you guys see this okay? I think I have it shared now. I can see it. Cool. All right, so this is a waterfall. This is our uh, second. No, first day, uh, we went up to 12 Mile Beach, and we went up a, uh, just, I don't remember the name of this specific fall. We didn't do a lot of waterfall things, but this was super close by. Uh, there's tons of waterfalls up in, in northern Michigan. So uh, another thing that I learned about northern Michigan is that there's also a, a wolf problem, so much so that uh the deer are, are pretty scarce up there that's my dog and half of my wife there in the picture the waterfall but uh yeah so we have a friend who's a local in the uh, go gobeck area and so she was able to take us to uh, several spots which we'll get to in a moment but uh, she she was saying that her family this is this is on 12 mile this little uh i'm just scrolling through the pictures here but this uh someone had built a teepee i'll pause at this picture because there's a story that goes with it but uh yeah the the local they have a they have a a, a uh, camp like a family camp where they go hunting every year right it's a traditional generational thing right and uh they haven't caught a deer in apparently eight seasons she said because there's so many freaking wolves up there and that is the case because there was a wolf shortage at one point, apparently. And since the government likes to help, they uh, they like they they introduced 
some more wolves to help get the population up and they introduced too many wolves and now the uh the deer are suffering because of it and the hunters are not able to get meat but uh they're still able to hunt grouse which is what they were planning on doing this uh coming week weekend i think but anyway uh wolves and waterfalls yeah uh, so 12 mile uh, so northern northern michigan is known for uh, rock hounding public beaches are open and available for anyone to go up there and poke around in the sand or the rocks and see if you can find any pretty looking ones right which we did but uh on this beach beach in particular we we found i, I believe is unikite and we did find some Uperlite at night, which is where you have to use a UV, a certain UV uh, wavelength flashlight, and you know sweep it along the beach. And these these rocks they they fluoresce. It's like uh, they pop out at you. It's it's pretty neat to to see. So we found quite quite a few Uperlites on this beach. But so like I said, we're doing this in the dark, right? And we're walking past back past this this structure that somebody had built and there's a lady sitting in there in the dark with no light and and her little tiny dog is like right here in the corner of this by the outside and i'm walking with our dog which you saw in the picture earlier she's a 60 some pound uh pit bull and the little dog just starts fucking going insane right and scared the bejesus out of me I think it frightened Ellie too, but that was uh, that was interesting. People hiding in the dark with uh, with their dogs on the beach in little driftwood teepee huts. I don't know. She might have known someone else on the beach. There were there were other quite a few actually other people, uperlighters up there. Like I said, it's it's kind of kind of popular, and the uperlight thing's taken off tremendously recent in the recent years so it's kind of a fad i guess at this point i mean i just learned about it myself anyway but yeah so this is 12 mile you guys can feel free to jump in if you want to uh add anything uh this is uh so a lot of these places that we went to were along the north country trail which is a hiking path that you can take from oh gosh it goes i think it goes up into minnesota wisconsin maybe but it starts over um near the east coast somewhere anyway somebody had left a couple hiking sticks there i thought it was kind of a cool picture so they backpack they they just take whatever they can fit on their back and that's how they travel and they camp in the woods it's pretty neat this is pictured rocks this is a pretty uh i don't know well-known national or area park area like the state park There's more pictured rocks on the on the other side there's this hole down here where the water shoots out of it's kind of neat not allowed to stand on that part. There's a fence right there. So this would be 
Exterior, I believe. So this, the the night of of the following this day, we got rained on for the first time. That would have been our first night out. Just looking down the cliff, not a very good perspective. So this is the uh, second campsite. It'd be day number two. You can see the tent there. I didn't. Uh, so <laughs> uh, trying to stake down a tent in rocky soil sucks. I think I, I smashed my hand at least one time. Each time I attempted to put up put up this tent with the with the rubber mallet, but yeah, you can't get the stakes in the ground all the all the way, which uh, which sucks because you know water can get in there between the tarp and the tent, and it's it can be a mess. But didn't rain on this this time, so no no worries there. Oh, so yeah, this is at uh, Union Bay Union Bay Campground, which is outside of. Antonagon in the Porcupine Mountains National Forest. And Porcupine Mountains uh, get got their name, allegedly, this is what I read, from uh, from people that were able to view the peninsula from the lake. So if you're on the lake on a boat looking at the land, it looks like a hunched over porcupine. So this is why they call it the Porcupine Mountains. And this was, uh, we weren't beachfront, that campsite wasn't beachfront, we were at the same Union Bay uh, campground for four nights, the first two, we were inland a little bit, but this was the whole beach, these giant, just rocks of, I don't, I don't really know what it is, basalt, maybe, shale, oh, they got shale, shale lighter, I think, but uh, beautiful, beautiful beach, nonetheless, excuse me. Another picture. It was kind of a uh, pretty windy. It was like the windiest day, I think, that first night that we showed up there. You'd see the waves washing over the giant rocks, which we got to walk out on later. All right, so this is Lake of the Clouds, which is this giant lake up in the middle of the porcupines. And on a clear day, I've been told, allegedly, that you can uh, see the reflection of the clouds in the lake when it's not super gray and cloudy out like it is in this picture. But uh, you can see how like, it's kind of protected by this huge cliff, which runs you know, pretty much the length of, of the river. And it's up there in the mountains, so you know, it stays... was able to stay smooth right there's no you know ocean currents or wave lake currents it is an ocean it's a giant freshwater ocean so yeah the uh lake would be over here this is looking out through the porkies the porkies that's what the the nickname for the porcupines speaking of other another shot from uh lake of the clouds speaking of other 
other other words things that begin with the letter p uh, we sampled some of the local cuisine up there called uh, affectionately called pasties and if you say uh pasty that means that you're not from the area and so you stick out to the local like sore thumb not that everybody that's not local sticks out you know already they're kind of uh touchy up there a little bit but uh, yeah pasty pasty is a traditional uh food ate ate by miners speaking of mines here's one that's been gated off but uh yeah it's generally stuffed with meat uh, meat onions potatoes rutabaga and uh a lack of salt <laughs> is generally what i found needed needed salt at least in the couple places that i got it anyway and you put uh you put ketchup on it not gravy if you put gravy on it you're you're doing it wrong but uh anyway yeah so this mine uh apparently you used to be able to get into and they locked it off this is just on the side of the road there was i don't think there was any explanation or plaque next to it so this is uh i believe in bessemer or around about that area it's just some park in some park that we looked for rocks in they built this neat little structure in 1936 there's a lot of old stuff old preserved stuff there's a they had a tank there for some reason you know, i don't know it looks like a world war an early world war ii tank I uh, didn't walk up to it, but uh, took a picture of it nonetheless. And then uh, in Ironwood, this is the uh, theater in Ironwood, Michigan, preserved or uh, restored theater. Got a picture of a man holding a torch, riding a Pegasus on the ceiling. Pretty uh, Leonardo da Vinci esque, or Michelangelo, or whatever, right? beautiful painting it's all been restored and kept up with more images of the painting this is the side of the chairs I go it's just the in, in the intricate details in in some of these the architecture of these towns like this little griffin this iron griffin thing pretty freaking sweet and they've got all the fleur de lis type looking grills on the, the marquee there i don't know if i took a picture of the date or anything but it was just a cool building that our local wanted to point out to us excuse me uh, i don't uh don't recall what that picture was just another outlook let's see if i can remember going through these oh yeah that was just uh some other place local place that uh, she took us to to another park just to get the view there someone had made this tic-tac-toe set with uh, acorns and rocks i thought that was kind of neat on a painted rock so a picture of that 
And this is at one of the beaches that she took us to. Looking for rocks. It's just a picture of the coast. So uh, campsite number two in Union Bay was number 13. And since doing 13 questions, the uh, this number has, I don't know, been more noticeable to me. I wish I, I'm going to ask Adam if he's had that same experience next time we get to see him. Uh, Adam is uh, not with us today. He's feeling under the weather, probably migraine related, I had to guess. But nonetheless, I uh, had to grab a. She, our friend uh, took us, she knows I am a, I'm a Mason, so she took us by the local lodge building. So I had to take a picture of it. Um, speaking of which, my dues are up. I have not paid them yet. But. Uh, I haven't done anything with these guys in years, but still, still keep my dues up. Masonry is the oldest and largest fraternity in the world. Side note, uh, one of the beaches that she took us to, the local, um, shout out to Josie, if you listen to this, was Little Girl's Point. And there's some pretty interesting lore behind how this place got its name and i did take a picture of it and if i can lean in far enough to, to read it off the screen here I'll, uh, I'll i'll do so so our audio listeners know what what's going on here but uh says the public park takes its name from a chippewa legend of lee lenaw the daughter of a hunter her family lived on Kaujujo, the oh man, the Crouching Porcupine. Now the Porcupine Mountain State Park. Uh, Leel and Awe loved to climb Kaug and look out over Itchy Gumi and the Isles of the Apostles, where she viewed and traveled to a projecting point of land on the westward shoreline. Here, this shoreline has a forest of pines called Manitok, or the Sacred Grove. The... Oh, man. Sorry about this. So it says the forest was seldom visited by Chippewas because they feared... All right, so they feared this name that I'm not going to attempt to pronounce, but uh, essentially translates into the Little Men of the Woods. And then it says that uh, Leelana did not believe in these spirits, and she ventured out. She ventured out into the sacred grove on the day of her wedding, and she disappeared. And after a torchlight search of the forest, found nothing. The evening, 
the evening fisherman passed by the point and saw a figure of a a man and woman on the shore. Uh, they rode closer, but the figures it says the figures retired, never to be seen again. So, uh, sorry about that poor, poor story reading there, but it's not a very well written account. Uh, Grammatically to begin with, they had to like uh, add in a, a uh, apostrophe here. You can see on the image, and there is a, a quote underneath that that I'm not going to read. But uh, yeah, kind of a creepy little story about little little folk, little folk in the in the spirit in in, in the woods. Kind of like gnomes, maybe. Um, one of the, the first things, speaking of spirits in the woods, take a drink of water. One of the first things that, that our friend told us when we finally met up with her was that uh, we should not whistle at night in the woods. And we should probably uh, stay within eyesight if we're going to be out in, in the forest because because people go missing up there all the time and nobody talks about it well at least you know it's not reported on but uh we kind of knew that i kind of knew that with the missing 411 cases dave david politis talks about i'm sure you guys are familiar with that but uh the whistling thing is is interesting to me because on the azazel telegram he talks about the, the the miners using canaries right canary in the coal mine and uh the 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 accepted the the i don't know accepted narrative i guess that is put forth it was was that they use these canaries to uh gauge the air quality right so if they're down there working and they have this bird in the cage and the bird dies it's it's time to to get out because there's not enough oxygen or whatever right that's that's the story well the alternative one provided by azazel is is that the the birds you know they're tripping away down there and they're, they're whistling and if the miners hear something whistle back from deeper inside the mine then it's time to leave that's that's when they've hit a, a hive of, of some sort apparently so just uh, interesting to get get that firsthand, I guess, confirmation about the whistling thing. Kind of creepy still. Actually, when I first came across, we went to we went to Little Girls Point two days in a row to look for rocks. The first day, as you can see, it's been all cloudy and stuff. But this was the second day that we were out. And uh, but yeah, the first time I didn't even go up to this and read it because I didn't really. I don't know if I was. I don't know what I was. I wasn't feeling it, but this is Little Girl's Point on the second day, and you can we'll get down to the beach here closer. You can see all the rocks on the shore there. I think we spent like on this day probably like six hours out there. 
this is a, a mushroom that I found on the way back. I just thought it was kind of neat looking. So I took a few pictures of it. I think that's the last one. I have to make a big postcard or something. Oh yeah, so this is uh, our friend's friend's family owns a, a well, or I'm sorry, a spring, natural spring, out in the in the area. And we were able to use it, right? So we got we filled up our our five gallon jug of water plus our water bottles. It's just right on, right off the side of the road. Like this is, if you're looking at the spring and you look to your left, this is what you would see. It's on a hill under a railroad bridge held up by very, very thick beams of old looking wood. Pretty cool. So this is back at Union Bay when it's not so choppy and wavy dark out i think this is uh the morning i don't think this is sunset i think this is sunrise so union bay would be this is inside of the porcupine mountains and you can just tell like how the earth was pushed up with these like shelves just popping up popping up popping up and that's like, I mean, I'm assuming it's like that all over the mountain range, and that's why it, you know, it looks like a porcupine. It's all juddy and shelfy, but it's slanted at an angle. So the sun, it was so interesting. It seemed like the sun was so much closer up there. It didn't get very high in the sky. I mean, it's, you know, we're, we're just talking about it. It's fall, right? But, Just some more pictures of the beach. That is uh, Ellie out there with the doggo. I took, I took a lot of these, this angle, just because, I don't know, it seems like it would make a good desktop background or, or something. That one did not turn out good. It's just blurry. I don't know why I left it in there. yeah not a whole lot of rock hunting at union bay which was disappointing because we had booked you know four nights there but uh still beautiful crystal clear water right up by the shore you can see you know everything going on down there and it's not uh the uh the shallowness does not last for very long you go out maybe 300 or maybe you know not even that and then it, it it's pretty freaking deep pretty quick so that's campsite us campsite number 13 looking out on on the trail that goes to the beach there so this is in calumet which is in the upper peninsula of the upper peninsula so if you're looking at the upper peninsula there's like this little tinier upper peninsula that juts off the top of it and goes pretty close up to uh 
I mean, it's beyond that's Canada, right? Canada's waters. But uh, Calumet is an old mining town. Um, super interesting old brick church. Very, very sparsely populated. This was not a ghost town, but at times, I mean, there's cars parked here, but there wasn't a whole lot of people walking around. Like, we stopped there and got coffee, and, uh, I mean, there's shops, and mostly bars. There's two bars, let's say, you know, within a block of each other. Just this really cool building built in 1900. Like, all this, arch- I mean, early 1800s is when, uh, I believe the mining of iron was primarily the big thing and then you know copper and, and, and silver and gold were were discovered you know by the whites later after they stumbled upon the prehistoric mining sites right so iron was was the big thing this was an old iron town and uh, we stopped up here on the way to copper harbor which is on the tippy top of that little peninsula i was talking about but uh, this is at a park in Calumet and just the way that the, the trusses here and I don't know, the, the wood, this is all wooden and the windows has been kept up and you know, original, original architecture that you don't really see anymore, anywhere. And this is the man behind the plan. I'll read this little snippet about the architect. It's kind of interesting. I think it's interesting. This is by the time Warren H. Manning came to Calumet in 1915, okay, so I was a little off, to begin a series of projects for the Calumet and Helka, or Hecla Mining Company. He was one of the country's most accomplished landscape architects. The son of a noted Massachusetts horticulturist, Manning designed landscapes that often featured native plants, a trend gaining popularity today. Manning apprenticed with the founding father of American landscape architecture, Frederick Law Olmsted Sr., the famous designer of New York City's Central Park, and the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago, so the World's Fair, right? While working for Olmsted, Manning supervised more than 100 projects, including park work in Milwaukee and Buffalo, and the estates of wealthy clients such as George Vanderbilt Biltmore Estate in Asheville, North Carolina, who I believe I'm distantly related to. Uh, Manning opened his own office near Boston in 1896. A little bit about that guy. I think there's another plaque here. Nope. It's just a cool old clock oh yeah that that building i was talking that it was showing earlier is just the restrooms <laughs> it's just a fancy looking restroom next picture okay what beach is this um, not little girls point oh oh this is uh this is uh near near calumet forget the name of the beach, but it, yeah, we stopped here 
but for all oh, we had to get out to they were doing road construction so we had to park at a trailhead like i don't know quarter mile half mile down the road and walk through a bunch of road work <laughs> wave to the construction crews and to get onto this public beach they had blocked off the parking lot right so none of the cars could drive in and we get down there and this is what you know this is what's waiting for us just bunch of bunch of beach rocks and this is a picture of at the water's edge which is crystal clear looking in there but we i don't think we found that much on this beach so this is this is in copper harbor which is north of calumet we didn't go into the town proper we just went uh, to the beach to look for rocks Hunter's Point. Oh, okay, so maybe maybe that was still at Calumet. Hunter's Point. Hunter's Point Park is formed by at least three volcanic occurrences, evidenced by the volcanic ridges running east to west. Or I'm sorry, west to east. Took some little dyslexic there. The north beaches are composed of conglomerate and basalt formations. So those big giant slabs uh, over at down at Union Bay was basalt. So from the basalt outcroppings are estimated to be 1.2 billion years old. The super old, old mountain range, which is very interesting when you think about the, the stories of the spirits, right? The, uh, this little placard says the brownish red pebbles are rhyolite, a volcanic rock. They make up more than 90% of the rock on the beaches on Hunter's Point. The darker pebbles are basalt, pebbles of granite, and genese can be seen. Genis, nice. Uh, the contemporary narrow south beaches are mostly gravel and sand. So yeah, that was outside Calumet. We haven't got to the Copper Harbor picture yet, but... Uh, this is also, I think this is in between Calumet and Copper Harbor. This is Central Mine. This little town that we stopped in, it was a you know, ghost town, but it wasn't more than, you know, two, three, it was a church building and like two small houses on a dirt road off of the one highway that goes up this little stretch of peninsula but the central mine was where they uh were mining for copper back in 1854 i'll just read this little sign here uh, in 1854 heavy masses of native copper were discovered in the bottom of an ancient pit dug by prehistoric miners in november of that year the central mining company was organized a rich ore body was soon opened which had produced a total of nine million seven hundred seventy thousand six hundred twenty-eight dollars by July eighteen ninety-eight, when the property was finally abandoned. Until the Kearsarge Lode was discovered in the nineties, the Central Mine was the biggest and most profitable producer in the Kiwani District at at one time, the population reached 
a total of approximately 1,250 people. And reunions of former residents and descendants are held here annually. So that is kind of freaking cool. I did read a little bit more about these reunions. They have them at the church that is located in the, the ghost town. Or what's, you know, what's left. Um, had to take... This was in the little heritage, like, welcome center for this this ghost town out of the central mine. So you could see Freemasons were there, and this is the Knights of Pythias emblem over here. So, I don't know. Secret societies, mines. This was the old mining house. We did get to go inside of it, so it's actually pretty big. I would, uh, I mean, from the outside, but when you get inside, it is pretty. Uh, it's actually in pretty good shape for being how old it is. But they do have a bunch of stuff set up in there to make it look like you know it's staged. This creepy little baby doll down here corner of a crib and then some information on the wall there about oh yeah this, this, so I guess they didn't know what this uh, particular room was used for and they're just kind of guessing it's used for, for, for sewing because of the light in the window there's still a lot of unanswered questions about how stuff worked all the way back then. So yeah, it looks big from the outside, but super low ceiling. So I guess, you know, I am a tall person, but this is the upstairs bedroom. It still looks pretty spacey. We'll get to uh, another ghost town in Fayette at the end of our trip here. Yeah, that house was uh, actually pretty nice compared, comparatively, I would say. Uh, so this is the Central Mine trailings. They would, uh, this is all the shit that they dug out all the way back then, and they took it to this area, and they just made a big pile and left it. So uh, it is open for public roaming for the most part. There are some construction crews that will come and gather material from here for you know, various construction purposes. So uh, they do ask if that type of thing is going on to state out of this. I don't know, it's not a park. This, this uh, pile of rocks. <laughs> Excuse me. And yeah, we did spend quite a lot of time here. Did take a couple pictures, so we'll go through these real quick. This is at the on at the top of of the pile, looking out where we parked down here. Um, we did find this is a some old building all the way in the back, like the pile, like all this stuff is still rocks it's not a very good perspective but it's quite a walkway a quite a ways walk back to this point and there's some other building over here 
that looked newer and like used like someone was doing something there so we didn't go explore these ruins but you can see if i zoom in here just the brickwork on the corner here and the arch and this is you know 1800 something this stuff is still standing it's pretty cool i mean it's ruins but testament to the architecture back then right this is uh the the area of the trailings where we came across the copper chunks that we found we found a, a big hunk of copper and i didn't know what it was when i first came across it it was green so it caught my eye because it was a different color than the rest of this stuff but uh i picked it up and you know it was heavier and it was vibrating like the, i would touch one part of, of the rock and i could feel that motion move throughout the and reverberate and like make make everything you know make the rest of it vibrate and, and then i decided to smash it on another rock and it broke obviously but then i could see you know if i looked more closely the, the uh you know how it broke was you know it didn't like shatter into pieces it was broken but still together because the copper was still binding it i don't I don't think i took any pictures of the of the chunks on my phone but maybe uh we can get in to a show and tell on another episode but yeah this was the area we found those in um i guess not very well picked through because they were just sitting right on top i'm assuming it was green because of the oxidation this was on our way back from copper copper harbor uh there they had this huge scale look at this picture on the side of the road for how much snow they get up there so the all-time low was 161.1 inches in 2000 so that's just below 15 feet of snow that's the lowest <laughs> 15 feet and then we go up here you can see the record high snowfall was the winter of 78 79 which you know everybody that lived in that that time frame talks about but it's 390.4 inches which is over 30 feet of snow in this in the upper the upper peninsula part of the upper upper peninsula speaking of the upper peninsula one of the interesting observations i'll say i made about the the, the local culture up there is the uh the outline of the state you know you'll see these on you know bumper stickers or cutting boards will be in the, you know the shape of states or you know t-shirts or, or whatever right well in in the lower peninsula you'll have both peninsulas pictured on whatever you know the car detail decal or whatever it is but when you go when you go up to the northern part it's just the northern peninsula that is that is pictured there's no 
there's no lower peninsula. They they don't they don't like to acknowledge the uh, the LPers, which aren't really called LPers. They're they're called trolls because trolls live under the bridge, and as we all I don't know if you're aware or not, but the the Mackinac Bridge connects. Lower Peninsula to the Upper Peninsula, and which was only built in the year 1954, by the way. So that is a relatively new. I mean, still. Okay, so I guess it's not. It's like 80 years old, but it was a big, a big thing back in the day. So yeah, I thought that was a cute little nickname. <laughs> cute, I don't know the right word, but uh, yeah, trolls. We're all. If you're in the Lower Peninsula, you're a troll, and if you're in the Upper Peninsula, you're a youper. And they, they like to make that distinction. And this is the Fayette campground. The last one, last place that we stayed at, but this is right next to a old iron iron ore smelting town called, you know, Fayette. It's the state park. And uh, here's the town coming out of the trail from the state park you can see there's still a whole bunch of structures standing which is pretty neat the original layout nothing's been moved right some restoration obviously but we started with the poor neighborhood this is still walking down to the park the laborers cabin this is the upstairs. I don't know why I took a picture of the upstairs first. This was a reconstruction. But uh, the poorest people lived uh, out near near close to the beach, not on the, the harbor side. They lived out. I mean, it's a harbor within a harbor. It's a really interesting area. But they, they got, a, they got the, the unprotected side of the settlement, right? So pretty windy. Um, I guess it was really dirty. People would just throw their garbage and shit on the ground and not, not pick it up. Um, it was noted, like historically, how dirty this place was and disgusting. Um, more pictures of the inside of the laborer's cabin. Uh, down here is the root cellar in the middle of the floor in the hatch. The hatch down there, and you chuck your vegetables down or your roots. Carrots and potatoes, rutabaga. Uh, some of the old utensils that they found there at the site. They had uh, trouble figuring out where where's the stove. Um, well, not trouble. Um, they they moved to the stove. People that were living there at the time would move the stove depending on what season it was due to you know the heat. So. One of the things is one of the things that they learned while they're you know doing excavations of the site. But uh, this little placard says, "In the winter, the kitchen stove generated enough heat to cook and keep families warm in these small log cabins. But during the summer, the same stove would make the house far too hot to do other tasks. Many families chose to move their cook stove to a summer kitchen." Cabins in this neighborhood had attached sheds that could have been used for this purpose. In the fall, the stove was polished before being brought back inside. 
I believe these are coal ranges. I don't know if uh, any of you have stove expertise, but I don't, I don't. Maybe it was wood. I'm just thinking. I mean, they had tons of wood around. So there's the outside of the cabin, right up on the beach. There, it's super pretty. But I guess it was super dirty. So that's where the laborers lived. So this was a company town. The uh, I forget the company's name, but if you didn't, uh, you know, have a job working for the company, you were just kind of a laborer person. That's the area of town where you would live. And just down the road from the laborers, this is another shot of, of you can see these giant windmills that they put in. The laborers' house is just over here, but yeah, it was kind of ugly to look at. Um, can't really see it too well from the campsite, but it made the sky flash at night because of the lights, the blades going around. Um, so this place, Fayette, had a pretty freaking cool hotel, apparently. Uh, this little placard says the hotel's proprietor not only managed a first-rate lodging facility, but also ran a library stable equipped with rigs for hire. For hotel guests who traveled over land, the barn provided shelter and a fresh hay for their weary horses. So this is the remnants of the library, and we'll get into the hotel in just a moment. Here we are. That's the check-in area. The hotel is all behind glass. This is why that weird reflection is there. Uh, it's looking out one of the doors of the hotel, kind of like a old tiny western western looking -y. Uh, the stairway of the hotel. I thought the uh, banister there was pretty ornate. Again, the reflection is because of the glass. Can't argue too much about that. is like the lobby area of the hotel the two entry doors are would be behind you in this picture but you can see the original fireplace here uh, this is the middle class section of town these houses were a little bit better than the laborers section but this picture right here just looks like, you know, it could be, you know, it's a little run down, right? But it could be any other, just looks like any other neighborhood in the country. Just a couple of houses, right? Two-story wood siding, right? But wood shingles. They still got the, you know, the little raised basement area, which I don't know if that's popular in other places of the country, but we'll see an extreme case of that in the doctor's house coming up here in a moment. This is down the road from the middle-class neighborhood. Again, uh, shale. This is the shale on the beach. They would use these to build the foundations for these their, their town, the buildings. That is the Dolomite Cliffs. So coming into Snail Shell Bay Harbor, this is a 
the protected area, the protected side of 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 the lake, because the obviously the cliffs here, these are white. Uh, we didn't get to go up on them, but uh, pretty spectacular nonetheless. I took plenty of took took a lot of pictures of them. It's just not really something that you see too often. There's a buoy out there in the distance. More dolomite cliffs. Uh, that's a picture of the uh, foundry, the smelting, the smelting building. The two stacks here are the furnaces where they would dump in the the ore to be melted. Then they would scrape off the slag from the top. That would be the byproduct, and that that stuff is still littered all over the place. But we'll get more. We get to the foundry is pretty much like the last thing that we did. But this is the supervisor's house. So the supervisor was, you know, the the boss of the company, not the boss boss, but the uh, for this particular operation of the company, right? He uh, he ran he ran the stuff. That's where he got to live. He was uh, the there were there were a number of supervisors, right? But the one that we read about was. 21, 23 years old or something like that, and his wife was 18. So pretty young, pretty young people living in this uh, fancy house here. Um, interesting note on the population, I think we'll get to this later, but the, the pop, half, of the, half of the population of Fayetteville were under the age of 17. So hashtag child labor, right? <laughs> um, so yeah, this is all downhill from the supervisor's house. You can see the Dolomite Cliffs and the bay there. Some of the old docking pillars or what's left over, right? I'll get better shots here in a second. I was just taking, just enamored with these cliffs here for a minute. More cliff shots. But that's an actual photograph. See, there's the supervisor's house that I showed you earlier. And yeah, four warehouses and a schooner were captured in this photo, taken after 1891. So, so a little uh, quote from Schoolcraft County Pioneer says that the Fayette looks like a little Chicago this week. The harbor is full of boats and business is brisk. Four warehouses stood on the on a wharf off this point of land. Vessels like the steam barge Fayette imported general supplies, machinery, and bricks to Fayette and departed with cargoes of charcoal iron. Iron Town. Iron. Uh, so this is the, the sawmill. Picture of the sawmill. Black. Um, oh yeah, this, which was you know right by the shore there. I think you saw it in the on the, the other picture, but uh, they dredged up this log. Here we go. So here's the picture of the log during excavations or exploration, re-exploration of the site. They they found this giant log in the bay that had fallen off apparently on its way to Fayette. 
the little placard next to it says Fayette's Sawmill burned in 1871 and was rebuilt the following year. In its basement, shops, carpenters, oh, shops, carpenters assembled wagons and prepared materials used to build the barges that carried iron ore from Escanaba to Fayette. I guess I didn't take a picture of the dredging info, but that's where that log came from. Giant log. They had an age for it, too. It was ridiculously old. This is the entrance to the supervisor's house. The parlor. Fancy setup for a reception of newlyweds. There's the entryway. Well, as you're coming in the door, you go upstairs. Pretty cool wooden banister, I think. I guess the second floor was an addition that was added later on. Uh, pretty spacious up there. Looking out uh, the windows. I thought that was a cool shot. Very, oh, oh no. <laughs> Gotta figure out where I started. Lost my, lost my spot here. That's not it. Not to worry. We're, we're, we're almost through this, guys. Sorry if this is painful for audio listeners. I lost my spot in the slideshow. That's why I'm clicking around here for a second. All right. Aha. Aha. Here we go. So, yeah, the, uh, this is the supervisor's house. It's placard in the kitchen. Again, most of this stuff is behind glass. So, you know, I think this is a, this is not. This is a doctor's house. Because we saw these deer. These deer just let us walk pretty much right up to them on our way. out of the uh, supervisor's house and towards the doctor's house, which is super interesting if I can get to a picture of it. Here we go, back on track. So more pictures of the so upstairs of the supervisor's house, looking out that window. That's like a postcard or Windows desktop background or something. I don't know. I don't really like that image. There's another one from the same angle. Uh, view from the top. There's a little placard up here. talks about how the uh, superintendent watched uh, two fires from those windows in 1876 and again in 1883. It just says, you know, imagine being there and seeing that from this specific, yeah, specific vantage point. Very ghost town-esque, right? So another picture looking down the hall. Pretty beat up, but uh, in really good shape still, I would say. 
another super cool image, I think. So yeah, here's the little snippet about how Zoom in here so I can read this. So over a 24-year period, six superintendents and their families lived in this spacious 2,500 square foot home. For most Jackson Jackson Iron Company employees, living in the White House wasn't even a remote possibility. So yeah, just just for the boss man. At his own library. So they set this up for moving day, apparently, and they staged it, right? Some interesting staging scenes in a wedding reception in the parlor and then moving day. And also moving day in the kitchen here, as you can see. Or off to the kitchen photos. Oh yeah, so here's those the deer. Pretty tiny deer. Like it doesn't have spots, so it, it wasn't a fawn. But just let us get super close to them. So this is uh, on that was on the way out of the superintendent's house to the doctor's house. This is uh, after walking up, basically, you know, it's a flight of stairs right here. And we'll get a shot of the outside of it. But the this entranceway is so high up, I'm assuming because of all the snow, right? Shot of the kitchen from in the doctor's house. Uh, it's about the doctor's wife. He he had a fancy parlor as well. All right, so there's some ruins coming out of the doctor's house. There's the dog looking at the ruins. I believe these are all just uh that was a section of the middle middle class homes but uh speaking of one of those homes they did find that day they discovered a morphing addict had lived in one of those places they found a bunch of these bottles shoved in the wall and they have them on display in the house this is uh, the 13 medicine bottles found, and there's that number again, 13, found in the wall contained enough morphine for 9,000 doses. Morphine, a potent pain reliever, is a highly addictive drug whose side effects include blurred vision, loss of appetite, sleepiness, and the inability to concentrate. In the 19th century, it was also used to control diarrhea and coughs. Despite its dangers, morphine was legal in the U.S. until 1914 and was easily purchased by mail or at pharmacies. And this other little note down here says why were so many bottles unbroken. It says the long piece of lace that you can see in the, in the bottle there uh, may have been used to lower and raise each bottle as the addict tried to hide his or her addiction. So, I'm not really sure who was addicted, but um, interesting sight, yeah, so it's hard to tell 
who was the addict because several families lived in this house at different times and it is not certain when or why the items were lost or hidden in the wall. And they just give some conjectures here of who, who the father or the mother, border, uh, could have been a younger child. I was just reading that little section about the younger. It says it's doubtful it's the younger child, but uh, they still included it as a possibility. Go figure. Um, interesting note. I do not believe you were able to purchase beer in the uh, in the town. Actually, I don't know if I took a picture of that placard, but the company. I, don't, I believe it was probably a company policy, right? No, no alcohol type thing. So yeah, it's just in that this is in the drug house, morphing house. Pictures of inside there. There's the dog again. Outside. View of the foundry. More outside pictures through the windows. That is the outside of the attic house. And pictures of the outside of rundown houses. Um, view out from the harbor across to the foundry. So there was a four story grain elevator right off. The harbor. There's a picture here. It stood on the dock. It was pretty tall. For, I mean, I think the uh, smokestacks for the foundry are probably four stories too. Um, so the grain elevator site, in addition to the charcoal iron produced at this foundry, Fayette also exported railroad ties, telegraph poles, and grain. A grain elevator located on a nearby dock was used to load wheat and other grains into the holds of vessels like the steamer Cuyahoga. Uh, today, pilings are all that remain of more than 900 fleet of docks that once bordered Snail Shell Harbor. So there's Harbor Bay. Uh, they used a, an overhead cable system, conveyed block ice from the ice house to the village meat market in the town hall to your left. So here's another picture of an old-timey picture. And so they wheeled, not wheeled, but uh, ziplined ice back and forth between these two houses. The ice house and store. Oh no, couldn't preview. Oh, here we go. So lake ice, often three feet thick, was cut in blocks and stored in an insulated ice house. Packed in sawdust and straw, ice was used in warm weather to preserve meat and other perishables. So 1800s technology. Uh, this is the entrance to the... Uh, Music hall. One of the entrances. Oh, I think that was the only entrance. So the music hall is upstairs. They have this giant stage on the second floor 
of this building. And this is all reconstructed to look like what uh, it would have been back in the day to the best of their knowledge. They did find some graffiti on the back wall here. Some 1800s graffiti of performers that were, that were there and you know, doing shows. They, were, they wrote their name on this wall or a wall right here so uh, but in one of them was a uh, traveling circus dog show by uh, professor ed loomis his signature is one of the ones up here which i thought was interesting circus dog dog circus don't see those anymore Another picturesque look out of, I think that's the music, yeah, that's got to be the music hall. Pretty, pretty good view. Back where the uh, performers would change costumes. So this is backstage upstairs. Pretty cool. Uh, so a little bit about the music hall. They gathered here for programs of entertainment, drama, and debate. Concerts, lectures, and dances were sponsored by civic groups like the Drama Club, Literary Society, and Cornet Band. Among visiting showmen were Professor Wiggins, a ventriloquist, and Antonio de Colombo. Quote, the great Italian fresco painter, wizard, and fortune teller. So a few other people that were at the music hall. The wizard. Wizards all the way back then. Always been around. Always have been. Some more ruins out of the second story of the music hall, I believe. Another view. This is a looking towards where the poor people lived in this area. So the opposite side of the harbor. So the Jackson Iron Company created Fayette to smelt iron ore, but it took shop, shopkeepers, businessmen, and professionals to make the village a thriving community. Some people worked directly for the company. Others combined company contracts with private enterprise. A few businesses were completely independent, and a few were not allowed on company property, like beer, bars, right? alcohol, stills, uh, kids, kids at Fayette. So I think we're in the schoolhouse at this point. I didn't take too many pictures of the schoolhouse. But yeah, it says almost in 1880, almost half the people in Fayette were children under 17 years old which is just insane to me. It's like 600 kids, 500 kids. So an example of what children would do. Grew up uh, only a short distance from Fayette, Escanaba, played tag, baseball, croquet, hide and seek. And oh yeah, I took this picture because I don't know what mumble type peg is. I was going to look that up, and I never did. Some kind of weird 1800s game. This is uh, some more ruins. 
cool looking foundation outlines. This is just uh this is one this is the boarding house. They had a boarding house for for laborers, workers, right? So explaining explaining uh, this this little plaque explaining about whipworm and how the you know parasites were super common back then. It says if you play in dirt and don't wash your hands, you might accidentally eat a whipworm egg. Uh, what's that? It's a microscopic parasite found in soil contaminated with feces. Uh, archaeologists discovered whipworm eggs in soil sample samples taken from privy sites in this part of the village. 19th century patent medicines such as Kemp's vegetable pastels for expelling worms from the system and the Kickapoo Indian worm killer offered quick but sometimes dangerous cures. Today, whipworm infections are still found in places where good hygiene is not practiced. The worms and their eggs are killed with medicine. Uh, better eating and cleaning habits are taught to prevent reinfection. It's a little history here. Lesson about parasites back in the 1800s. Whipworms. So this is all remnants of the dock along here. I believe this building right here is the company store, which we'll get to in a moment. Oh yeah, this sailboat just decided to sail into the harbor as we were walking around. So had to capitalize on production value for a second and snapped pictures of him coming in. Uh, they did find some knives, pottery, and projectile points excavated at Fayette, uh, suggesting that prehistoric people used this harbor as a warm weather campsite 3,000 years ago. So they have some of them on display there. Uh, that's an outline of the harbor, uh, the superintendent's house up here. That's the foundry, uh, the kilns. Poor people lived over here, middle class neighborhood, uh, hotel, music hall, uh, what was it, a company store, machine shop are all on this road. So it's just an out, a layout, old map from 1907. So, uh, yeah, so, again, I apologize to the audio listeners. Uh, if you, there's another uh, image of a placard here with some quotes about living in Fayette. A uh, couple examples are I'm glad my children can go to school here, and if they get sick, the doctor will come right away. Somebody says, I can charge at the company store if I need to, but prices are high. If 
I could go to Escanaba more often, like the bosses do, I'd have more choices. Someone else says, my wife can buy food, fresh food, and I can hunt and fish when I have time. The food is much better than when than we could get in a big city. And then somebody else says, back in the old country, we'd all go to the tavern after work sometimes. Here, we have to leave the village to find a beer. So there's that. That's why I'm thinking it was a company rule, right? So this is the, the company building. That's a... Uh, no, this is not the company building. This is the, the barber right here. And I forget what was in this next store. I think that was the store. I think that was the company store. I don't think... Uh, no, this was... This is... No. I don't remember what this building was. Hold on. This... Uh, did I? Yeah, that was okay. So that's the the stone building was a company store. Yeah, the remnants of it. So it says that uh, it, it stocked merchandise from leading wholesale businesses in Chicago, Milwaukee, and Detroit. Although convenient and enticing for Fayette families who could purchase on credit from the Jackson Iron Company, mail order businesses, Amazon, cough. It, it doesn't say Amazon, but. Uh, offered lower prices. No matter how fairly it is managed, one resident said the company has generally considered a, quote, pluck me, a term can commonly used to emphasize exploitative mining company stores. So, prices are super expensive at the only place in town where you can buy anything, which just happens to be who you work for. So there goes your paycheck. <laughs> uh, remnants of the store. You can see just the roof working here. Big old windows looking out over the bay. So they had a machine shop there, obviously. Um, Power machinery used to manufacture equipment parts was driven by steam pipes in from the furnace boilers from the, the smelting, you know, smelting place. Uh, master mechanics were paid 75 cents per month. Machinists earned $1.80 a day. And this is the outside of the machine shop. Uh, this octagon window up here is a unique feature I did not see on any of the other buildings. They also have these cool, uh, I don't know, metal decorative things on the side here. I just thought it was neat, neat uh, little decoration that I didn't see anywhere else, but it was on the machine shop for some reason. It's looking out at the bay from the machine shop. Another one in the cliffs. Take a look at the cliffs there. So the the, uh, the office, superintendent's office, you can see you know, giant safe here where they kept all the money and where the superintendent got to work. Looks pretty fancy. The pay office, right? So this is the room right next or in front of the superintendent's office where uh, 
people would come and line up to get their paychecks. Right here in the lobby, kind of looks like a bank lobby with a teller window cage. So yeah, that his uh, the office is right here in the back. I think this is the same building that the barber was in. Uh, so this ruin right here is the leftovers of a scale pit, which I thought was mm -hmm. interesting. It says the brick brick-lined pit marks the remains of a 19th century industrial scale for weighing charcoal and other freight. Contractors for the Jackson Iron Company carted wagon loads of charcoal from outlying kilns to feed Fayette's furnaces. The spring mechanized scale weighed each load while the company paymaster tallied the amount. Always, always weighing, just like on the truck scales today in the uh, great highways of this country, which I just got to drive a bunch of. Uh, this is the, the, the town well, the town water line. Uh, a quote from the Escanaba Tribune says that there has been a water pipe laid from the furnace through the streets as far as the barn so that water can be had in case of fire at a hydrant near the store. And uh, it says this underground pipeline supplied portable water to the company, office, hotel, and stock barns. And another quote says, at any hour of the day or night, a resident complained, it's clanking away may be heard above the howls of the neighborhood dogs or the neighboring dogs. So it was a loud, loud water line. This was the remnants of the locomotive house where they would, this pit right here is where workers would jump down into so they could access the underworkings of, of the trains that would come. this is part of the blast furnace for the smelt factory i believe it's a blast furnace we'll get to a layout here uh a few in a few slides now, there was two of them so the second one's a little bit I mean, a little bit rougher shape pictures of the foundry not entirely sure what those rooms were used for boilers, perhaps. I don't remember. We'll get to it here in just a second. Um, so yeah, this little slot near the ground here, this is what it was, you know, that's what's underneath there is more of these pits. Furnace complex, here we go. Uh, these sections of the furnace complex Oh, which ones are we looking at here? Well, you can see the layout here. So the furnace stacks are the tall things. And then the boiler rooms were right in front of the stacks. And the casting rooms are outside and kind of flanking the stacks. And blast blast ovens. I was right. Those were the blast ovens were outside the boiler rooms. and. Next to the boiler rooms, you've got the blowing engine room. This little placard here says these sections of the furnace complex house the machinery which 
powered the foundry's hot blast. Boilers supplied steam to the blowing engines, which forced air through the hot blast ovens and into the furnaces. The furnace stacks were enlarged and modified during their period of use. So I don't know if that made sense, but that's how that worked. <laughs> uh, this is just another picturesque view ghost town uh more foundry those are the smokestacks this is the back looking for the back of the foundry it's on a hill we'll see that here in a second so they were they had a bunch of charcoal kilns we saw that on the on the map here in a few a few slides ago but uh they loaded these things with the top at the top with 35 cords of hardwood and each kiln produced some 1,750 bushels of charcoal per burning. Uh, the charring process lasted six to eight days, and when cool, the charcoal was removed by hand at the lower door, which you'll see here. I took two pictures of that for some reason. So there's the top of the kiln. My order got a little jumbled here because there were other pedestrians about. But uh, the kiln was right over here and the foundry is further. So these were retaining walls, which are original. You just see the construction with the bricks and the shale that they're using. That's the foundry uh, side. That's one of the charcoal kilns right there. Looks like a cone, a stone teepee almost. Uh, this is one of the lime kilns. And the placard says the limestone quarried from the bluff, the Dolomite Cliffs, was heated in this kiln to produce lime used in mortar for masonry, chinking for log houses and plaster for interior walls. Excess lime was sold in Escanaba. Another product of industrial Fayette. So the line kiln. Uh, this is the quarry site. So these are the, the Dolomite cliffs that I took so many pictures of, and you can see like the ground here. Like you, you can tell where they've just taken the rock back, and this is now the exposed face of the rock after they're done working and on the placard there i don't think i took a picture of it but you can go up there and see you know drill marks of where they were working still so so this is the view in front of the foundry looking out across the harbor to the superintendent's house and some of the dock pilings and again the water is just crystal clear right here you can see the shale just continue out into the water. That's the inside of the charcoal kiln. This one, uh, particular one, was a reconstruction. This was not original. Although I think this little section right here is probably a reconstruction too, now that I think of it. <laughs> Maybe they're building the second one. 
Uh, this is inside the foundry. Uh, this is inside the, the furnace. This is looking into, you can see the other one over there. But uh, just look at the thick brick, layers of brick right here. And this is, this is uh, vaulted, like it's wider you know, on the outside and it's smaller on the inside. Pretty cool masonry work. Uh, these were, they passed something back and forth between the buildings. I forget what exactly those were used for, but yeah, moving, moving hot stuff probably. Furnace complex, yeah. Uh, it was the heart of the industrial Fayette. Here, the heat, roar, and odors, odors of the smelting operation merged with the shouts of men or of engines and shrill and shrill scream, scream of steam engines. Uh, nearly 230,000 200, 230, tons of charcoal iron were produced here from 1867 to 1890. There's the furnace complex again. So the smelting process, uh, iron ore was crushed, mixed with measured amounts of charcoal and limestone, and lifted by a steam-powered hoist to the top of the furnace, where it was dumped into the stack. So they used those the bars I was just pointing out for it was before it was hot. <laughs> Get it up there. Uh, inside the furnace, the charcoal burned, fed by forced air heated in blast ovens. As the ore melted, its impurities combined chemically with the limestone flux and floated to the top of the molten iron. This waste, called slag, was skimmed off the surface and removed. The molten iron was drained through a tap hole into channels in the sand floor of the casting rooms, where it cooled, hardened into bars, or pigs, and was removed by laborers like Pig Iron, Fred, Fred Hink, who was a laborer, I guess. Good old Freddy. All right, so this is the last picture. This is the, the sundown uh, from our campsite, which is down the trail from Fayette, looking out over Lake Michigan. So that that is that is the end of my slideshow. I will stop the share there. And yeah, footage. Uh, I think I mentioned everything I wanted to. What you guys? What you guys think? Like an awesome trip, man. A lot of uh, a lot of ex exploration points. Many, in fact, pretty cool. Well documented trip. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, ben? yeah, uh, that was awesome. I've always uh, uh, been fascinated by those porcupine mountains because they're some of the oldest in North America. And they're just worn down because they're so old. So being out here in the Rockies, you know, these guys are pretty new being, you know, just a couple hundred million years old. So, yeah, I forget. I was reading a pamphlet I picked up of, of some park somewhere. I can't find it, but it was, they were around like a billion, like maybe over a billion years old. I like guess it's, it's ridiculous how old these things are. 
So maybe, uh, maybe check out the uh, YouTube for any of you listeners that want to actually see the pictures. Um, that didn't last. Though that lasted longer than I thought it was going to. <laughs> so maybe this won't be the most popular episode, but um, sword segment. The uh, point behind this segment, just to give everybody a refresher after my long, possibly boring spiel, uh, the point behind the sword segment is what I've come to the conclusion of is, is just a reminder. This is a reminder of 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 empowerment, of methods to empower yourself, which often involve thinking, right? Or the the function of feeling, as Jung would describe, which is a decision-making process, right? It's a judgment, uh, judgment-making process. But for so, uh, in in the spirit of that. In the spirit of that, we've been doing readings from Neville Goddard. Uh, we did Charles Hanel, finally, who wrote The Master Key System, but we read from his book, The New Psychology. Uh, we've been, we covered uh, um, The Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz. We did The Celestine Prophecy by James Redfield. And uh, so, yeah, just uh, empowering reminders to, to, um, just like I said, remind us, reminders to remind us of how awesome we are. Yeah. But without further ado, though, I thought we would do something a little different just because we did something a little different for the silver segment. And so these, this, this, this next reading, I guess, please guys feel free to chime in if one of these uh, quotes strikes you in in any way really that resonates with you if it uh i don't know grinds your gears or if you you know get a get get any type of inkling of whatever right or maybe you disagree or agree with part of it or or whatever but uh we'll we'll go through this this chapter it's not like i said once we get started you'll you'll see that uh each page is literally like one sentence and uh it is let's see 39 to 88 so maybe we'll get through half of this i think uh, he writes the most about wisdom in this book so uh i purchased this after hearing namaste fortune de saint germain on uh, Crow Triple Seven podcast. So shout out to those guys. Uh, he he authored this uh, short book on the 12 divine virtues. And since the, the third segment is hopefully highlighting wisdom, is my, my, my aim, my goal for this, right? Reminders, because wisdom is supposed to be remembered, right? But uh, one of my, before we start on in on uh, Fortune's quotes here, uh, one of the quotes that I've been thinking of lately in regards to wisdom is that how if you want to gain 
in knowledge, you add something to yourself. And if you want to gain in wisdom, you subtract something from yourself. So that rings pretty true from what I've experienced so far because I know, personally in my own pursuits of, of knowledge, I guess, I've found that knowledge itself can often be a, uh, a demon, can, can trap you, right? Can distract you, which is what devil's good at distracting. So uh, I've been thinking a lot more about wisdom. And so that's why this, this idea came to my mind to read from, from Fortune's book uh, about the wisdom chapter specifically, which is just what I just so happened to flip to when I picked up the book. Right away, right on the chapter of wisdom. So, maybe we'll just do a few of these since we are getting to uh, top towards the top of the second hour, and I've been talking a lot. <laughs> um, so he starts off with wisdom, and he correlated to the third eye chakra. Opposites are ignorance and ugliness. The archangel is Gabriel. Masters are Buddha, Merlin, Lanto, and Hierarch is Shiva. First quote is first quote is most lessons are learned by living in pain because we ignore the loving messages and signs. And that's he just has that by heaven is, is the author of that quote. And if I don't say an author afterwards, um, I'm assuming it's, it's his words because it's his book. So second, second sentence, new page, another page. I trade in my eyes for God's eyes. I see creation as God sees it. Buddha did not say all of life is suffering. He said all is dukkha, suffering by wrong living. Desire is not the root of all suffering. Desire for outcome other than God's will creates suffering. Attachment to outcome creates drama. Okay, this one pricked up my ears because it reminded me of reality transurfing and and other other books, right? Obviously, but and uh, often when we're especially Neville, Neville is big about uh, getting the feeling of your desire and cementing that into your subconscious. And that's how we would bring about the kingdom here on Earth, right? So, Vedum, I believe, does emphasize the non-attachment to the outcome because he describes it as walking towards, like, getting your mail from the mailbox. Am I describing that right, Bootsy? Have you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah, it's about, you know, importance. It's, uh, it's kind of the key term that he used to describe that attachment, right? It's just a different key term, I think. But yeah, you could easily make a, a million obstacles for yourself, even on the way to the mailbox, depending on how you decide to view that. But if you view it as a, a routine trip to the mailbox, then that's all it is in your in your perspective, right? In your slide or your view um, or outlook, whatever you're broadcasting and projecting onto the to the track. So yeah, it's like he he talks about basically just being comfortable with whatever it is that it that you're trying to bring into your life. If you if you're if the more conflict that you have with it like out of sync and out of step you'll be and the more you'll just create more and new obstacles so yeah it's uh, a lot to do with attachment it's the same exact same thing I think yeah the emphasis on importance that really yeah that's that's pretty clarifying I think because of you know the the outcome is important but we shouldn't Obsess over it, I guess, is, 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 would be the, the wise thing to do here, right? Well, yeah, and what's the essence of the thing, too? I think that has a lot to do with his outlook. Because it's like, really, that book's not about attaining enlightenment or anything like that. It's about getting your goal, whatever that is. But if you don't understand what the essence of your goal is, then you're always going to miss the mark. Because you're going to see that as some, like, external reward or some, like, accomplishment or a claim or some sort of external sort of metric um, which there's nothing wrong with you know having um, some success but if that's the reason why you're doing it then you're missing the point anyway you know because you're supposed to find your goal and in finding your goal and pursuing it you can have fulfillment in life because you've enjoyed it being on the path of your goal it's not it's not about accomplishing it even when you accomplish it you'll want you'll have new goals we all we know how it is, but um, but that's really the underlying theme, I would say. Yeah, is just give up the fight. Just you know, find that goal, and instead of it being about attainment of something or gaining some external thing, you know, that's what that's what, what us, you know. Yeah, that's what creates the drama. Is the the outside stuff, I, w I would say, the creating by um, by uh, using others as a measuring stick, I would, I would, I would think that's it would be one example. I would, uh, yeah, but yeah, like you, like you said, like anything that's missing the mark or AKA sinning, right, is going to create drama. Like that just that just makes sense to me. Now that now that we're talking about it, if you want to use that those terminology, those terminologies, right, that terminology sin thing all right uh this yeah, that's like the vanity that's the vanity of the goal right it's like oh I'm gonna yeah. do this thing i'm gonna have this outcome it's like i don't know not to sound cliche process process or whatever because obviously you want to see results but you know the results aren't material recognition material things recognition vain things like that the pleasure would be in enjoying the thing itself right like whatever the essence the true thing about whatever it is that you're pursuing is right like what what's behind 
what's the thing behind the fame that you're actually looking for right exactly, exactly. then the notoriety comes of its own accord but if you're looking for notoriety i don't think you ever really attain that because yeah i mean that's just an empty that's a very fleeting uh, goal to have especially like i mean i don't know i get it i understand the sort of the idea in people's heads, right? Like everyone wants to have an Academy Award, but do you want to starve yourself for a year and a half while you do a role about a heroin junkie? And, you know, like the amount of shit that goes into that is just mind boggling, you know? <laughs> so it's like someone, someone who's going to be able to accomplish whatever that feat is, is going to be so uh, completely invested in whatever that, is that they're not going to have time to think about accolades you know that's that's that defeats the purpose yeah yeah i think that it is tied i mean the the whole concept of legacy whether that's you know having offspring or you know chasing fame which is you know one of the uh, i think is one of the uh, the trumps in in tarot or is interchangeable with one, depending on which deck you're using. But uh, it is definitely, and it seems to be like an, an an innate drive, like desire. And yeah, I don't know. There's 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 something there, but it's the thing behind the behind the, the want that is yeah. Like we've not to be too reiterative, but that's what we're aiming for. And we miss it, it creates drama. But uh, we'll do we'll do a few more of these. We're not going to get through the whole chapter this time. So uh, yeah, this is this is fun though. I think having having these little conversations prompted by these thoughts. Um, the next one that Fortune has written down it comes from Zoroaster, and it says thought, word, and deed should all be one. An expression of the divine. So, quick background on Zoroaster, I believe, is uh, founder of Zoroasterism, which is one of the first uh, religions where we get the concept of duality and a purely evil god and a purely good god. And as far as the quote, it, it, that pretty much reminds me of being impeccable with your word. And which is the first agreement that Don Miguel Ruiz talks about. Because it's not just our words, right? It's our thoughts, because thoughts are, you know, words are thoughts before their words, and, you know, our deeds are the result of the culmination of our thoughts and our words. So being being impeccable with, with, not, with not only your word, but with your thoughts, your word to yourself, which, you know, which is your thoughts. And this is this is a uh, very powerful agreement to try and, and harness, and one that uh, challenge every day. I, I would say, at least, you know, maybe, uh, yeah. I don't know. Any any thoughts on that thought word? Indeed, should all be one expression of the divine. Seems pretty pretty to the point. <laughs> Seems like intention. Yeah. 
intention. That's uh, one of the masteries that uh, Don Vigel talks about in the wisdom or in the Toltec wisdom tradition. That we've got the mastery of intention, the mastery of transformation, and then the mastery of uh, attention. Right, intention and attention. Intention would is uh, an act, another another name for God, essentially, or consciousness. Next quote: Focusing on self and having creates suffering. Being in selfless devotion is joy. That one's kind of interesting. Makes I mean, focusing on self and having creates suffering. That part makes sense. Being in selfless devotion, which he has capitalized, is joy. No author on that one. Even the greatest drama becomes comedy once we sit down. I love this one because... In doing 13 questions for oh, two years or whatever, however long it was, I think it was over two, around two, that was one of the the, the, mo- the themes that I could kind of draw out of, of all those interviews was the divine comedy of, of life, of, you know, whatever it is. If we, if we zoom in real close to the situation and look at it, yeah, it looks like a tragedy. A tragedy. It's, it's sad. It's sucky. But if we zoom out, and look at things in the big picture and try to remind ourselves of what's really important, then it becomes a comedy. And uh, you know what? That's, that's, that's a really good explanation to the spirit behind our, our uh, second segment here. Uh, starts with an S. I'm getting my, my, my words mixed up. The silver segment. I'm gonna, maybe, maybe I will... Uh, earmark this page for future reference all right we're gonna do we're gonna do one more and then uh and then we'll sign off for this this installment all is a manifestation of the divine even that which we judge as bad And that one that one just reminds me of the uh, the whole everything happens for you instead of to you right change that the victim mindset into a hero mentality so i think that uh yeah we've we've gone 2 hours now i think we'll we'll call it call it good for this episode um guys i don't rem- I don't know what the uh, weekly scalar energy session is going to be because I failed to look that up during the show. Forgive me, I just back from vacation. But uh, please, please, please go over to mysticalwares.com, uh, find the scalar energy page in the menu. Uh, it is fully explained, uh, much more than I have time to do right now, on how this technology works. But it is based. Uh, he does use the Royal Raymond Rife frequency list. Uh, which you can also find on the site. Um, but uh, yeah, sign up for the weekly session. It's free. It is a, a group thing. So the group uh, provides feedback, which is then used to uh, pick next week's topic. Um, but uh, yeah, go to mysticalwares.com, uh, go through the checkout process, like you're buying something, but you're really not. You're just putting your name in the hat, so to speak. 
And other than that, uh, share the show, guys. If you if you like what you're hearing, uh, if you like what we're doing here, if you like the cut of my jib or however you want to say it, leave a review. Um, and yeah, any any closing thoughts from Ben or Bootsy? I promise we'll do we'll get back to headlines next week. It'll be more engaging. So, but uh, yeah, thank you guys for being here. Did you have any any uh, last minute thoughts? I would just say have a great week, day. Have a great day. I'm going to be doing uh, some more podcasting coming up here soon. Now that we're out of the summer, so I'll kick awesome. that back up. I would love to have you guys come and hang out sometime with me. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm just excited about the fall. I do. I, it's my favorite season. I love it. I, I go out, walk, enjoy the autumn. Lovely leaves. I don't know if that's a haiku. It's probably not. <laughs> but my uh, my hope is that it it reaches you on that same level. Much love. Ben, are you still with us, or did the storm take you? No, I'm here. Just uh, yeah. Thanks for including me. It was a great reading tonight. Um, grateful to be here with you guys awesome well thank you guys so much once again for humoring me and until next time chrononauts carpe diem